more than any other subject, STEM subjects really require a whole lot of critical thinking and analysis of visual representations. And um, when, you, when you have to really look at those, you, you don't need a whole lot of language to be able to look at them and think about them. You can think about them in your L1. And as you're, a, as you're, if you're an English learner who's acquiring an L2 or an L3 of English, then you get to think about these things in, in multiple ways and multiple languages. And you're, everyone in the room is still looking at the same visual. So uh, actually, ELLs are really poised to thrive in advanced STEM classes. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Why are advanced STEM classes such a good fit for so many English learners? What strategies can teachers leverage to maximize impact on diverse learners in STEM classes? How might we remove barriers that prevent many English learners from taking advanced classes throughout their academic careers? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Dr. Stephen Fleener. Stephen is a scientist turned educator who is inspired by the principles of sheltered instruction and growth mindset, particularly in the service of English learners. In 2014, Stephen earned his PhD in developmental neurobiology and sought to empower the next generation of thinkers as a high school science teacher at a Title I school in San Antonio, Texas. He has developed innovative approaches to working with ELs and economically disadvantaged students and has presented his ideas across various districts as well as at regional conferences. A central component of Stephen's pedagogy is student ownership of personal growth throughout the school year. This approach has been particularly effective in promoting language and content acquisition for ELs, and under his leadership, his department closed the gap in EL performance on the State of Texas Assessments of Academic Readiness, or STAR exam, in science. In 2017, Stephen was awarded the Edgewood ISD District Teacher of the Year Award and the KENS 5 Excel Award. He went on to serve as a science instructional coach for Edgewood ISD. In addition to his PhD from Oxford, Stephen holds an MED in school leadership from the University of the Incarnate Word and a BS in biology from the University of Texas at Austin. Before we get started with our conversation with Stephen, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our EL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our Whiteboard Wednesday short video series, blog posts, and articles. And finally, as always, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This will help us continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. As always, thanks for listening. Here's our conversation with Dr. Stephen Fleener. Dr. Stephen Fleener, thanks so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Thank you very much. I'm very excited to be here. Yeah, so this is an exciting topic. It's something that's been, I've been reading about quite a bit, and I think something that uh, gives us a lot of hope and potential for the future, and that is um, English learners kind of thriving in, in STEM classes, which 
to many people at first, and I'll admit to myself included, perhaps five years ago, uh, would seem a little counterintuitive that English learners can thrive in these kind of advanced STEM classes. If you could start by explaining why many people, yourself included, think that they can thrive. And I know that's a wide question, but I think it's a great place for us to start. Absolutely. There's a couple parts to that question. You know, one is uh, how can English learners thrive in advanced STEM classes, but also how can any learner thrive in advanced STEM classes in advanced STEM class? Because because really the the rigor and the uh, vocabulary and the linguistic demands of the advanced STEM classes it really is a great equalizer. Every student going into those classes is is essentially learning a new language. What I I, I like to call it the science language, because uh, it is full with uh, a whole lot of new vocabulary words, but also a whole lot of um, mannerisms and ways of of expressing in both written and spoken form that students just aren't used to. So when ELLs come into a an advanced STEM class for the first time. Uh, they are experiencing a lot of the same challenges that uh, that fluent English speakers also experience. But what's really unique about advanced STEM classes that's really powerful and beneficial for English learners is that more than any other subject, STEM subjects really require a whole lot of critical thinking and analysis of of visual representations Mm -hmm. and those visual representations can be uh, graphs or figures or they can be diagrams or they can be uh, images of data like images and micrographs for example and um, when you when you have to really look at those you you don't need a whole lot of language to be able to look at them and think about them you can think about them in your l1 and as you're uh, as you're if you're an english learner who's acquiring an l2 or an l3 of english then you get to think about these things in, in multiple ways and multiple languages, and you're, everyone in the room is still looking at the same visual. So uh, actually, ELLs are really poised to thrive in advanced STEM classes. Yeah, that's, that's great. You brought up a f- couple things that I want to dissect. And the first one, you said the great equalizer and the new, you know, that the, the, it's a new language for any, anybody, this, mm-hmm. the language of science. And I can certainly relate. One only has to go back and look at my performance, uh, at the, my first semester of chemistry, <laughs> to, to, to see that I that I was definitely uh, I was definitely equalized, regardless of that'll my, humble you. Uh, yes, it, and it did of my uh, of my language skills. And interestingly, um, a lot of the uh, thinking back on that, a lot of the teacher assistants were actually from other countries, um, mm-hmm. and while they struggled with with the language in some aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they, they had the concepts down completely. And I have to think that they were thinking, getting to your other point, um, in their, in their first language, um, most likely, or perhaps in both. Um, and the second thing you brought up is the visual representation, which I think is amazing. And that goes to L, the L1, the idea of thinking in L1, oh, yeah. looking at something, processing it and us embracing, which I think is another trend and a positive one. Um, students maintaining that uh, that home language, whether it's whether it's thinking in it, processing in it, writing in it, uh, mm-hmm. reading in it, et cetera. Absolutely. So, kind of a nice transition here to my next question. Um, you know, you 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 talked about last time we had talked, we chatted briefly before uh, before recording this podcast today, and you said something that I thought was really interesting, which is being highly proficient in English is not a ticket to science proficiency. So my question is, does the fact that science is a new language for all learners, does it, does it 
Does it help English learners? I mean, you talked a little bit about that before. Does it hurt them? Is it just neutral? Is it, are they like everybody else? What's your take on that? Well, for an English learner in a science classroom, if the science classroom is really focused on the academic language of science, that environment is very helpful for the English learner in, in the English learner learning the science language for sure, but also acquiring the English language. What, what we'll notice is that if, and this is true for all subjects, but it's really true for science, if an English learner is exposed to a whole lot of academic language and a whole lot of opportunities to practice ac academic language um, throughout, throughout the day, that English learner will acquire very rapidly and, and very proficiently academic English. Now, academic English can be used in, in a social setting. It just makes you sound smart, yeah. which, which is not a bad thing. Yeah, for sure. Um, and actually, the, the TAs that you were talking about uh, in your chemistry class, you probably noticed that when they communicated with, with you uh, on a more social way, they would use words that, that we wouldn't use uh, when we were out to lunch just because they're a little bit more complex words but they still convey the same message and they probably sounded pretty smart when they said that. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yep. I, I, I had a, a friend who would always use the word determine, uh, all the time to, to refer to anything about finding or, or, uh, or looking for or, or anything like that. And, and I just thought he was a genius because he would always say determine and it made me really want to say the word determine all the time. Um, so, uh, so the academic, science language that is as really embraced in a, in a language-rich science classroom does help English learners because it helps them acquire um, academic English, which I, I would argue is um, just as good and can replace basic conversational English very well. And, and I'm really not worried about the basic conversational English because that will happen outside of the uh, science classroom regardless. Yeah, I was just going to say that's typically happening and where students are struggling, where we're having a lot of focus is on that academic English. So kind of to, to piggyback on that point, to, to expand on it a little bit, obviously, you know, in, in, in most schools, we're seeing English learners with a wide variety of, of skills. They, you know, they mm -hmm. come with uh, different language abilities and, and expanding on the idea that, that science is a new language for everyone, it would seem that there's, there's an opportunity for inc increased equity for diverse groups of learners. I, I, I wonder if you think that's the case. I, I, I suspect that your answer is yes. But expanding on that, I wonder also, what does that mean for the teacher? I mean, you're talking a lot about academic language here mm -hmm. um, and really, really reinforcing that academic language. If I'm a teacher who hasn't worked a lot with English learners, how much extra work do I need to do to make sure that I'm sort of catering to their needs while also working with my other students? Is it something that I should be doing anyway with, with given the fact that yes. science is its own language? Yes. So I would say if you have a class that is full, if you're a science teacher and you have a class that has zero coded English learners, everyone is, is coded as completely English proficient. I would say that, uh, that if you provide the same linguistic scaffolds that you would provide for English learners, your kids are going to thrive in your, in, in, in your science class. Yep. And, and those kind of scaffolds, they're, they're really not a whole lot of work to produce. It just requires getting the habit of it. For example, providing sentence stems or emphasizing the key vocabulary of the day or having visuals, really, really rich visuals that, that students can um, have a conversation around. And when you have diverse groups of students, I, I would definitely agree that if you have um, 
a very heterogeneous class with different levels of English learners as well as English proficient students, you would you you'll have a very very highly diverse class, maybe more diverse than an English only uh, a class that's full of English at the L one, and I think that that diversity is is an asset more than a burden, and I think that because science what doesn't get a lot of attention is actually that science is a very, very social profession that the practice of science requires a whole lot of collaboration with peers. You, you, we have this, we have this kind of stereotypical image in our head of this <laughs> nerdy scientist with Coke bottle glasses in the corner of the lab doing these experiments late at night. And then, I was still guilty of that. I'm still <laughs> guilty of it. So I'm glad you're bringing it up. Keep going. <laughs> but, it, but it's in, in practice, it's not the truth at all. In practice, a single scientist getting a single experimental result, the first thing he or she will do will, will be to shout from the rooftops and go show his or her lab mates and, and other people in the building the data and they'll, and they'll talk about it collaboratively. So, so probably the biggest, I, I wouldn't go, I wouldn't call this linguistic scaffold, but the biggest habitual practice that is really powerful for all learners, especially English learners of, of diverse levels is to have students in heterogeneous groups where they can be discussing these visuals, using the emphasized vocabulary and using the sentence stems. And that is mirroring science and practice, like unlike anything else. You know, so much of this is just, is just, it seems like we have to break with these traditions and these entrenched like ideas that we have, not only about like what scientists do, but, but also about mm -hmm. what we do in our, in our classes and what we do in a day-to-day -day basis. You said two things that I think I feel like we cannot escape one episode and we've done over 50 at this point of this of this podcast without mentioning. And one is that good instruction for English learners is good instruction for everyone. And you said in a really powerful way, which you said, no matter if you have no students coded as ELs, these these are going to help, you know, your, your students who are, who, are, who are English speakers. And Absolutely. two, you mentioned that these students bring assets to the classroom through that sort of social lens of, um, of science, which I'm glad you brought up as well. And like those two things, it's just, they, no matter what the topics that we're talking about, they come up and I think they're, they're sort of sinking in, which is, which is great. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that you mentioned that I want to dive a little bit more into because reading some of your work, you seem to emphasize this. Um, and that is the idea of, uh, of visuals and using them, mm -hmm. um, effectively. I think, I think most teachers use visuals. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've seen like as a coach, as a mentor, you know, as a teacher myself, them being used really effectively and them being kind of used as I have to use visuals, so I'm using them. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. What elements uh, do you think ab about using visuals make them most effective, particularly for English learners in STEM classes? Yeah, thank you for asking that because, uh, because you're right. We do see a whole lot of visuals in a lot of different classrooms, but what, what we can sometimes see are visuals that are uh, unproductive, perhaps sometimes even counterproductive. I can give you an example, a, a non-example of, of a visual that I saw once in a science classroom. The vocabulary word was clay, as in referring to um, uh, you know, sediment deposits in, in the process of sedimentation. And uh, the visual that went along with it was a picture of a clay tennis court. And that is something that is uh, unproductive and potentially counterproductive for any student who isn't familiar with what a clay tennis court is, especially an English learner who 
hasn't yet learned the word for net or line or chalk or all these other things that are present in the visual as well. Right, right. Uh, and so what, what makes a great visual is something from which the students can infer some kind of meaning about the word from the visual. So uh, uh, what we want to do is we want to have something that goes away from just being a hieroglyph, just being kind of like a sight representation of the word, and more of something that uh, has some clues into it about what the word might mean. So for example, the word photosynthesis. Instead of having a picture of a sunny leaf right next to photosynthesis, have a picture of a leaf and a sun and an arrow going from the sun to the leaf and maybe oxygen coming from a second arrow going away from the leaf or something like that, depending on the level in, in which the, the word is being introduced. So really a visual is something where uh, students can look at it and if they think about it uh, long enough and hard enough, then they can pretty much entirely infer the meaning. And what's really important about that is that that meaning that they'll infer is going to be in their own language. For an English learner, that's their L1. But for any learner, it's it's whatever, you know, the, the, the thoughts and the way we express our own thinking in our heads is. And so it's, it's like, it's like automatically differentiated. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And that is a lot more powerful than a glossary definition. And because a glossary definition is, is written by uh, the, the scientific community, let's say, or by a single author from that frame of understanding. But what students first need is they first need to be able to put it in their own words. And they can do that when they're looking at a visual from which they can infer the meaning. So I, so, uh, I highly encourage science teachers, specifically with visuals, use diagrams as, as much as possible. Use things that have um, arrows, or maybe they even have um, some vocabulary labeled in them. Anything that, that helps to draw meaning out of, the, out of the picture. Yeah, you know, I can't help but think that, like, with putting on a lens of, of technology that, you know, Google images, um, is yes. both a kind of a treasure trove and also like, uh, like a, a very like rough sea of <laughs> potential disaster, you know, Absolutely. uh, if you're choosing the first one, which people tend to do and they search anything Absolutely. Um, in Google. So that's a really great explanation of visuals. And I, I particularly like the idea of how, cause I mean, I think, I think, like many of us don't think about the metacognition, like what's going on inside someone's head and, and them knowing how they are processing things. And I think like this is a whole other podcast episode for a whole other time, but mm -hmm. like if, if students know that they are processing this in a way that's different from everyone else and understanding how they process that, whether that's a language thing or whether that is a um, just sort of processing thing on their own, um, I think is really, is really crucial. Absolutely. And just, and just adding on that, what you're talking about uh, going to Google Images, you're absolutely right. It, is, it has the good, the bad, and, and the ugly in it. And uh, what I would encourage a teacher to do is, is, to, um, is to kind of, you know, uh, be a little bit discerning when going through the, uh, the image list. But a step above that, and uh, I don't think this is a whole lot more work, because I think this is essential to lesson planning, actually is to think about what they want, what, what they think the student should, um, should learn from a, uh, from a visual or what do you, what they think the, the word can really mean. And then they can just, they, they can put together a visual themselves. You know, they can 
find a picture of that leaf and find a picture of that sun and, and draw an arrow right between it. And so that they're really driving the lesson with the visual. Yeah, for sure. Great. All right. So we're going to move on a little bit, something uh, a little bit different, although I think there's elements of what we talked about in here as well. And so you have written about using sheltered practices in AP and advanced classes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you give us a, a brief overview of, of, first of all, what sheltered instruction means to you um, mm-hmm. and how it can be used effectively in these uh, advanced classes? And maybe, maybe we wanted to find kind of what advanced classes means. I think that's a little bit ambiguous. So if you give us your context, that'd be great. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, I'll, first, I'll first define sheltered instruction in my words. Sheltered instruction is a uh, practice that makes curriculum that is above the current level of a student's uh, understanding, in particular, a student's uh, linguistic capacity. It takes that curriculum and it makes it accessible to the student. I would even say that what sheltered instruction is generally is it's the scaffolds that make the zone of proximal development available to every student. Um, Advanced classes, and, and, and this is this is very uh, relevant to advanced classes because advanced classes are classes where the curriculum generally is at a level that's above the grade level that the students enrolled in the class are currently in. Mm-hmm. And this can look like a lot of different things. You know, in, in, in the elementary settings, there might be a GT class or it might be a GT pullout scenario. Uh, and, and, and students there are exposed to higher level curricula. In the middle school and high school setting, you see a lot of honors classes or pre-AP classes. And of course, in uh, high school, you see a lot of AP and IB and, um, and, and dual credit and other advanced classes that are, that are meant to be at the level of, uh, of college curricula. So our emphasis on shelter instruction as a uh, in education, when we talk about shelter instruction, we tend to talk about students who are reading, writing, thinking, and speaking below grade level, how we can use shelter instruction to get them up to grade level. But the way I think about shelter instruction is it's a way of getting a kid from point A to point B at a, at a slightly higher level. So the same logic applies for an advanced class. If we have uh, higher curriculum that the kids are exposed to, then shelter instruction will help get them from from their current level of understanding and linguistic ability to that higher level. Yeah, so it's just a shift in mindset, just using the same exactly. logic, and it's it's completely logical. But again, like you go back <laughs> to that, like it has such a definition, sheltered instruction, mm-hmm. and it works, right? It's proven it works. But I think that we've seen it in specific contexts for so long that thinking about it, like that's why I had to ask the question because you don't, you don't hear about it too frequently. I think that's something that you're, um, you're doing some great work in for sure. Well, I really appreciate that because, because I, um, I, I argue at any school I go to, I say, you know, that's fantastic that we're getting our L's to English proficiency and, and they're, and they're, they're passing the, the standardized tests and, and they're on track to graduate, but, but why stop there? <laughs> let's, let's keep pushing our kids, um, to infinity and beyond. Sorry to throw in that Toy Story reference. I had to. Love it. My kids are already talking about uh, what. What's the next? Is it Toy Story five or four? Which one is out now? <laughs> I think it was four that just came out. Okay. So well, I either think, way, I think it's going to be like a Rocky series. 
Either way, they're mad at me that we haven't gone to see it yet. So I'm <laughs> glad you brought it up. That, that will remind me. Um, so vocabulary, like one thing, another thing that you emphasize, you, we talk about visuals, we talk about sheltered um, instruction. Um, and, and one thing that I liked and that I kind of related to my own work as a teacher when I was teaching AP Spanish um, literature to non-heritage speakers of Spanish, which is certainly very different than what we're talking about now. But one thing that mm -hmm. I really tried to do was like emphasize choosing as you say, two to four vocabulary uh, words for, for each lesson. Mm -hmm. um, I, I kind of know how I did that there. I know it worked and what didn't. Um, curious as to uh, how it applies in, in, in these advanced STEM classes with the, with, with the you know, a heterogeneous mix of students. How should teachers go about doing it in a way that will help students build that academic vocabulary that we've been talking about? Great question. The, uh, I, I, can, I just first tell you that the, the, my basis of, of saying two to four vocabulary words per lesson is, is to say that vocabulary should really drive the lesson. But if you look at any standards or any vocabulary lists associated with science uh, or STEM standards, you'll see uh, <laughs> what looks like millions of vocabulary words. Totally uh, overwhelming. Yep. Exactly, exactly. And, um, and having you know, a day of defining 25 words at the beginning of the week and then and then uh, we'll, we'll address vocabulary again next Monday. That's just completely, it, it's, like a, it's like trying to drink from a fire hose. Um, when it comes to taking those vocabulary words at the beginning of the lesson and really driving the lesson using those vocabulary words, what we can do is we can take those words and have students talk about them, make sure those words are present in their reading, and make sure that students are producing as a written product every single day, uh, multiple sentences or multiple paragraphs that utilize those vocabulary words specifically. And we can all do this in the context of a whole lot of mortar words. And for any listeners that aren't familiar with that terminology, that's all of the words that, that are highly common in academic texts, usually across subject areas, but we're not actually specifying them as vocabulary words. Mm -hmm. And what we often see in science classes is that science is so cumulative and always builds on itself. And so what was a, mortar, what was a vocabulary word three units ago, uh, you know, a couple months ago, might now become a mortar word that will appear in the scientific text and the students should be using with their sentence stems and their structured uh, academic discussions. And they should also be using those words in their writing. And so what we can do is we can uh, keep the focus on those vocabulary words, those two to four vocabulary words of the day, but we can bring back mortar words over and over again that might be scientific mortar words or might just be general mortar words like, like determine and ascertain and those kind of words. Uh, we, we can bring them into the context of sentence stems, into the context of, uh, of um, the reading and, and the annotations we do with the reading. And so all of the other vocabulary that's essential to master science can be generally emphasized throughout the day. But if we have two to four words, that, that can be the anchor of the language throughout the lesson. Yeah. And I think the key here, and correct me if I'm wrong, at least the way that I'm, um, the way that I'm sort of understanding this is really being intentional about starting with those words yes. um, and really making them be kind of the, the, the focus of what you're trying to do in, in the lesson. And if you choose the right words, the right vocabulary words, that's easy to do. Yes. 
And I think on the other hand, it's also very easy if you don't choose vocabulary words at the beginning, at the end to come up with this huge list of all these words that you really haven't, you've mentioned, but haven't Mm -hmm. really kind of nailed down. And the students probably haven't actually used um, because they weren't deliberately put into the sentence stems or deliberately part of word banks. Absolutely. So, so I would, I would describe uh, from my point of view, an ideal science lesson to start with, okay, class, here's our science. I, I should say science, technology, engineering, or mathematics in any of the STEM fields to start with, uh, okay, class, here are three vocabulary words. Let's all pronounce them together as a class. So we're all comfortable pronouncing them. Okay, here's three visuals with each of these words. Talk with your groups about what you think the words might mean based on the visuals. Now we're six minutes into the lesson and the students already have a pretty decent rudimentary idea of of what these words mean. And now we're going to be saying them over and over again throughout the lesson. That will just lead to the end of the lesson the students uh, really having a whole lot of mastery, both of the word and the concept associated with the word. Yeah, that's great. I think you've given us a pretty good roadmap about how to go uh, go about doing that. And um, again, it's, I can't help but think that this is a little bit just of a mind sh- mindset shift in how you go about um, approaching a lesson. You know, most most textbooks are, aren't necessarily going to start this way. The classic, you know, Spanish textbook that I worked with started with that that horrible, in my opinion, um, you know, <laughs> list of words for the unit. El yes. puerto, and there's 25 yes. words there. And the classic, you know, is make some flashcards and we're going to have a quiz at the <laughs> end of the week. You know, the, the, the shift in pedagogy um, and, and strategy when we're, when we're using vocabulary um, is evident and it's nice to see. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so we've talked about, um, we've talked about some strategies. Uh, of course, there are many more that we could bring up. Um, we've talked about the idea that, uh, that, that, that science is kind of a, an equalizer and that it's a new language for everyone. We've talked about how, you know, using, uh, strategies that are going to help English learners are going to help everyone. Um, I want to get to a more kind of, um, logistical question. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is kind of based on my own experience and I guess it's a little bit of a selfish question because I, I, I experienced this quite a bit in my in my role as a, as an AP uh, Spanish language and, and literature teacher, but I'm hoping that it helps others as well. And so the concept of this question is that like, there's this idea of in order to get into an advanced class, whether it's an AP class an IB class or whatever, there's these prerequisites. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a teacher recommendation. Maybe it's a certain grade in one class before it. Um, And so when you have all of these students who are at varying levels of English, and maybe they don't have the prerequisite at hand, they can't get into the class, um, you know, and and I I ended up having a very much open door policy in in my AP classes. And the only reason that I was able to do that was because I think that we had kind of proven that we could do that over the years. So the people who I reported to were okay with me bringing people in. Mm -hmm. How, How might schools that don't have this kind of open door policy mitigate those kind of challenges while still maintaining a rigorous course of study, which I think is the biggest challenge. Yes. I think that, uh, you know, schools, especially high schools, they, they're seeing kids that are the products of, um, of all kinds of, of pathway decisions throughout their entire educational careers. And, uh, English learners in particular who are, who are new arrivals or, or have maybe been in the school system for only a few years, there's a lot of murkiness from the school's point of view about, about 
what their educational history was uh, um, before they before they arrived into the school system. Mm-hmm. And so, and so schools are having to make these decisions about basically trying to predict the uh, the chances for success of a student. They don't want to set up a student for. Uh, they don't want to set a student up for failure, and I completely understand that. I think what's really important is for schools to have a extreme growth mindset about the difference between August and May in terms of how much a student can grow in critical thinking skills and foundational factual knowledge of of uh, previous subjects that he or she might not have had. So I would um, I, I would highly advise the schools not to make a, a uh, rule in, inscribed in stone about who can be led into classes based on whether or not they have certain credits on their transcript. What I would say is I would give the, uh, I, I would define the kind of essential skills and knowledge the student needs to be successful in the class, and I would try to compile resources and maybe after-school tutoring opportunities to help that kid achieve those skills and knowledges as quickly as possible in the beginning of the school year. But to say it's August 1st and the gates are closed because you didn't have these credits on August 1st, um, I think that that is an exclusionary practice that that really uh, – that really is the disadvantage of schools because they don't get to see so much potential actually shine because the, the beauty of advanced classes of of particularly AP classes is that they are so rigorous that if they are taught in a supportive way, students will grow so much throughout the school year. And, and if, uh, a student arrives in August and from the school's point of view or the teacher's point of view um, or, or from the student's record, it's, it's apparent that the student has deficits. We should not let those deficits define what that student can become nine months later. And, and uh, we should just see it as a, okay, here are the resources that, that this student needs and let's get him this res- him or her these resources as quickly as possible. And, um, and let's let's uh, address this the students' needs, and I think that if if that's done really systematically and with a whole lot of support, then we're not only going to see a lot more college enrollment and uh, and uh, probably stronger graduation rates, but we're also going to see a lot more threes and fours and fives on our AP tests. Absolutely. And before I respond to that, I have, I think I have a pretty interesting response based on a conversation I had relatively recently, but I I would, I would encourage people if you, if you missed any of that, go back and listen to that again, because I think you just outlined a great reason for not uh, putting together these, as you call them, exclusionary practices, which I completely agree with. Um, uh, But, but you also gave some ideas about how you go about supporting these students um, in that journey from August to May, or if you're um, where we are here in the Northeast, September to June, but um, either way, uh-huh. the point is taken. But I just wanted to, a quick like anecdote here because what you're saying, I, I just witnessed um, 
you know, the, the benefit of not having these exclusionary practices. I spoke with a young woman who just graduated from a high school in Pembroke Pines outside of Miami. She's off to Dartmouth College uh, this fall to, um, to study biomedical engineering. So she's in the STEM field. Wow, fantastic. She came here um, from Cuba when she was nine. She won one of our Take the Pledge scholarships. Um, and so I interviewed her recently for the podcast. And she attributed a lot of her success to teachers not saying no to her, to people saying, wow. you know what, you, you know, you want to do it, go for it. We're going to support you. We're going to make this happen. She also talked about some of the challenges that she had, uh, the stigma of being an English learner, the stigma mm -hmm. of being an immigrant, the stigma of, of since you don't have the language, you're not able to get involved in these classes. She's living proof. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a great episode. And I'll link to that um, episode um, on, on this as well. So folks can find it, but, um, she, she is living proof of everything that you're talking about. Um, and so it's a, what, what a, what a great kind of way to, I think, to, to sort of begin to conclude this episode with you. You'd Absolutely. be really Absolutely. proud of, of what she's done. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. We, 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 we literally for, for any one student, we have no idea what that student is capable of. So let's get that idea out of our heads and let's, let's make the sky the limit for that kid. For sure. So as we wrap up, one of my favorite parts of every episode uh, is when I ask folks if there's a book or resource that's, uh, that's influenced them in, in, in a personal or professional way. So I want to ask you that same question. We have a huge book list uh, and always getting new recommendations. Do you have any that you'd like to share? Yes. Um, there, there's one more than, more than any that it's not really an education book, but it, it's really inspired me. Uh, I'm always really inspired by, uh, by, uh, stories of people who just believe in themselves and they kind of go against the, the naysayers uh, like the student you're describing. There's a, a fellow named Todd Rose and he wrote a book called The End of Average. I know it he, well. Oh, very good. Okay. Well then, you know the story that he was uh, 18 years old and a high school dropout and, um, and, and struggling to s support his new family. And then 13 years later, he was a, a professor in the uh, faculty of University of Harvard, writing about having uh, more individualization in the way we we look at people generally, but um, it definitely applies to education. So that that's been a that's been a really big inspiration of mine in thinking about um, how can we how can we um, make our 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 curricula and our pedagogy and everything we do that has to do with young people, how can we make that open-ended and really uh, highly differentiate the needs of every single person because every single person absolutely can become faculty in, in the graduate school of education at the university of Harvard or, or, or anything they, they uh, set their minds to. It's, um, it, it's amazing what people can do. And I think he's really a really great uh, uh, proof of that. Yeah, I totally agree. And the book, I mean, he's got a great story, but the book itself is is so well written. I I, I yeah. could get into a million anecdotes from that book. That's been a guiding <laughs> one for me as well. But I'm glad you mentioned it because it's an excellent book and uh, we'll link to where you can find that one as well. And I highly recommend it. Um, and finally, last question, how can people learn more um, about the, the work that you're doing? Well, the easiest thing is just to follow me on Twitter. That's my, uh, I'm a, at, uh, what am I? I'm ST Fleener if I remember what my handle is. Um, and, and I, I post a, a lot about the, um, uh, every time I write a new blog work or every time I, I create a new product, uh, I post that on, on Twitter. And I also 
um, like to like to share a lot of resources that I that I find from people I meet or or just people I see on the internet uh, there. That's probably the the uh, easiest way to learn more about me. Great. We'll go ahead and post your Twitter handle on there so folks can follow you. And I would highly recommend um, following you as well and looking at some of the the, the blog posts that you've written. That's how um, I learned about you and cert- certainly our mutual um, colleague, John Silitz. But uh, really, really appreciate um, the work that you're doing, uh, Stephen. And you, you gave us a lot to think about there. And this is a really important topic. And I'd say one that's trending. Um, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.